Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Get Well Church. My name is Hunter Upton. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, excited that you've joined us for worship carved out this time. If you're our guest, we're so glad that you're here. If you're joining us online, uh, we're glad you're joining us as well. Uh, this morning, we are continuing to walk through our series that is called Jesus, Who is This Man? It's one of the most important questions that we'll ever wrestle with in this life. Uh, and that ultimately we have to come to a conclusion of for ourselves. Uh, I love how the, the bumper video talked about how this is a question for the world and also what does it mean for us? And so we're spending time walking through scripture, looking at in the Old Testament and looking at the New Testament to, but to see uh, from Genesis to Revelation how this whole story of God is pointing to Jesus. This man, the son of God, who's the one who comes with purpose, who is healer, who is the snake crusher, as we talked about last week, who's the provider, who has ultimate authority, who is the servant king. And what we'll celebrate on Easter Sunday is that he is the risen. This is Jesus. Now today, we're going to be talking about how Jesus is the provider. But before we get to the New Testament where we see Jesus himself, I want us to take a look at the Old Testament. Now, uh, if you do a word study of Old Testament, New Testament, it really means Old Covenant, New Covenant. But I got interested in this idea this week and looked up the word Testament in the dictionary. And actually, one of the definitions for Testament uh, is this. It's something that serves as a sign or evidence of a specified fact, event, or quality. So, how does the Old Testament point to this truth that Jesus is the provider? What is the Testament? So, I want us to look at two instances from the Old Testament. It'll be the first two books of our Old Testament of the Bible, uh, Genesis and Exodus. But first, let's look at the book of Genesis where we find this guy named Abraham who is the father of the Israelites. Now, Abraham, he had been called by God to leave his homeland, to go to the land that he was going to show him. And guess what? This land, this promised land, with it would carry three blessings. It'd be the blessing of a land, it'd be a blessing of a people, and most importantly, it would be the blessing to all of the nations, the entire world. So here's the thing, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they get to this promised land and there's one big problem. He has no sons, he has no inheritance, there's no way that what God has promised is gonna then be fulfilled. So. <clears throat> God has promised this, and so surely God would provide, right? And so at the young age of 90, Sarah bears a child. Y'all, I have a toddler, and I'm already stiff whenever I get off the ground. I can't imagine at 90, but anyway. So I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah, even at 90, are rejoicing in the Lord's providing of a child so that this blessing, this promise of God would be fulfilled. And so this is uh, when things get interesting. Uh, Isaac, his son, is probably no more than 13. And God asked him to do what, what this turns out to be one of the most gripping stories that we find in the Bible. And it's in Genesis chapter 22. But God asked Abraham to take his son Isaac on a three-day trek to the region of Moriah, where there he's going to show him the place where he's going to sacrifice his one and only son. 
man. That would be tough. Abraham believes in God. He's been obedient to God. And he's going to continue to be obedient to God, even if he doesn't understand it. But he thinks, surely God will provide. And so as Abraham and Isaac make their way up that mountain, they put the wood together. Can you just imagine Isaac being like, all right, dad, what is all this about? And as he binds his one and only son to that stack of wood, and Abraham rears back, God says, stop. Because of your faith, because of your obedience, I will provide And so Abraham looks up and he sees a a ram with its horns caught in the thicket. And instead, in in his son's place, he sacrifices this ram. Abraham, can you imagine what's going through his mind? He names that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide And so as we fast forward several hundred years, that story, which is one that you're going to remember as you go to uh, lunch with today, was a very well-known story uh, amongst God's people. And God's people, as they find themselves in Exodus chapter 16, they find themselves, uh, well, before Exodus chapter 16, but at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, they find themselves in captivity in Egypt. And there's this longing, this desire for God to provide for them to be able to have deliverance from this oppressor, this enemy of Egypt. I mean, God had been faithful in the past, right? He provided for Abraham in this way. So what's he going to provide for them now in their slavery? And after a series of miraculous events uh, between plagues and wonders and signs and miracles, God, he delivers these people out of slavery in Egypt. And they're able to walk right through a parted Red Sea on dry land. God is able, even if they questioned, God was able. The Lord will provide. It was a testament to his character. Now, when we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 16, uh, two and a half months-ish had passed since they had left Egypt, and they find themselves in the desert between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, where they're headed. And by this point, all the provisions that they had left Egypt with were running a little bit low. They're hungry. And actually, I think probably more accurately, they were hangry. Um, because, let's pick up in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. It says this, In the desert, the whole community, that's everybody, uh, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. I think they forgot uh, who was providing here. But the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, I think it's interesting how sometimes in life we, we tend to think back to things that we know or that we're comfortable with, even if they were not actually known or comfortable <laughs> instead. But we, we, we want to instead have those things instead of the fullness of life that lies ahead of us in following God. And I get it. 
If, I would, if my food was running low and I was in the middle of the desert looking around, not even sure where in the world I'm going to eat something from next, I think I probably would have been uh, grumble, <clears throat> grumbling too. But God had more in store. So he hasn't brought them out of Egypt. And it definitely wasn't Moses and Aaron who brought them out of Egypt. But it wasn't God who brought them out of Egypt to have them starve there. So what does God do about this grumbling? Pick up in verse 11 of Exodus 16. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. You see, God had led them out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom by his mighty hand. And yet again, God in his goodness and his grace has provided for his people. He gives them exactly what they need and even more really than that. But take as much as you need. Find sustenance in what the Lord has given you. This will sustain them from this time until they take the promised land. For 40 years, God is going to provide this. God meets their need. He is the provider. He is Jehovah Jaira. And we could keep going. There's so many more instances in the Old Testament where God is seen as Jehovah Jaira. But what happens when God comes in the flesh? And this man, Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. And what I love about Matthew's gospel is that the whole time what he's showing us is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And what we find in chapter 14 is the description of some of Jesus's mighty works that portray him not simply as the king of the Jews, but also as the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So chapter 14, it begins with a report that Herod, uh, King Herod, and this is not the same King Herod, that was Herod the Great that was at the beginning of the gospel when Jesus was born. Uh, but this is one of his sons. But King Herod has had John the Baptist uh, beheaded in prison. John was one of Jesus's uh, companions. Uh, he was the prophet who had prepared the way of the Lord. Um, he was the one who had baptized Jesus. And so can you imagine the connection and the heart that Jesus had for John? So as he hears these words, Jesus withdraws as he usually did. And so let's pick up reading in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus has heard, had heard what happened uh, about John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. 
Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Typical disciples. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And can you imagine Jesus sighing here? Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Now, when you go play trivia uh, today at lunch, Bible trivia, here's a fact for you. Uh, Besides the resurrection of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only story to appear in all four of the Gospels. It was that important to our gospel writers to include. So Jesus, he withdraws to this private place uh, by boat following John's beheading. Uh, and as usual, he's followed by a large crowd of people. They longed to hear him teach. They, they wanted to see him perform miracles. They had needs themselves that needed to be met. Because here's the thing, they saw in this man something different different than they had ever seen anywhere else. And they longed, they had passion to see what he would do. And as Jesus approaches this shore in this large group of people, uh, there's a, uh, the text says in verse 14 that he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. This word compassion in, in the Greek text, like compassion's a good word, right? Uh, Sometimes I'm told I need to have a little more compassion. Compassion is a great word. Uh, pity is a good word. Sympathy. All of these are good words, but, but all of our English words kind of uh, fail to, to really convey the force behind this word, the emotional force behind this word in the Greek. This word compassion, it appears 12 times in the New Testament. And compassion, pity, sympathy, they all convey parts of this word, but really the full force behind it is more like Jesus' heart went out. Jesus' heart went out. It was literally a, a gut response of Jesus in seeing this crowd of people in their need. The Hebrews believed that the seat of emotions was in your bowels, and so Jesus, his heart went out, not just in sympathy, just, yeah, I see your need and I feel sorry for you. But it's the kind of compassion. His heart went out in such a way, his bowels were moved from the insides of him, so much so that it moved him to do something about it. It met the practical need that they had as well. I've been working through a book uh, called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, the Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And it's Dane Ortland. he's the author. Uh, he's a pastor as well. And he, he writes this about Jesus uh, in, in this text. And he's quoting the, the Puritan Richard Sibbs. He says, the Puritan Richard Sibbs put it this way. When Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him 
The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they came from his bowels first. That is, whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. But then Sibs goes one step deeper. He did it inwardly from his very bowels, every part of him. And then Ortland says this, the Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affection stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. Now hang on to that. Imagine it. See it. Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. This Jesus, our Jesus, the Messiah, is the exact imprint of God. He's the very character of God. And he shows us God's heart in action. Broken people weighed down by sin, weighed down by this broken world, by broken bodies. Jesus, he, he's moved to compassion. His heart goes out. God's heart goes out for these people, and, and Jesus begins to heal them. And it's not because of anything they did, but it's because those merciful affections stream as rays from the sun. He loves them. So Jesus heals. And then it says that another problem arises. It's evening, they're in this deserted place, and it makes the reality of a miracle even more uh, pressing. And I really think that a day full of divine healings probably works up quite an appetite. And so the disciples are like, oh, it's, we need to send these people home, Jesus. Uh, they need to get home to try to find something to eat. And there's 5,000 men alone, not even counting their, their, their wives and their families and all of that. And can you imagine trying to send 5,000 people plus out to these little villages in this remote place? I'm pretty sure the convenience store wasn't even open by that time of evening. But, you know, these people, they've, they've come to Jesus. They've left their homes. They're following him. They're in this, this, this deserted place, and they're wondering, God, are, are you going to provide? And I think that's even the same question that the disciples are asking is, oh, Lord, we've, we've got to send these people away so that they can, they can find something to eat. And I think it's interesting. Jesus tells the disciples to feed them. Uh, one of the other Gospels right before uh, this text talks about how Jesus sends the disciples out to do his work. Friends, they had seen over and over again, this is what I love about reading through the Gospel because I see myself way too often in this, but they had seen over and over again the miracles of Jesus. They'd even themselves done miracles of Jesus. And yet they find themselves here on this hillside with these people going, I don't know, God. Not real sure what we're going to do uh, with these people. They need to eat. It kind of reminds us of the Israelites in the desert a little bit, right? And so Jesus, he tells them to, to feed the people. And they collect what's the equivalent of a boy's lunchable, uh, if you will. And we're told in, in John's gospel that it's a, it's a boy who provides this. And so Jesus, what's he do? He takes and he gives thanks to God for it. 
and he breaks it and he gives it to the disciples for them to pass out to the people. You see, Jesus looks to heaven just as the Israelites did in the wilderness because who is it that provides? It's God. Who is it that it comes a gift from? It's God. He is Jehovah Jireh. It's God who provides through Jesus. And one of the things that I love is that Jesus doesn't just meet the need. Jesus exceeds it. In verse 20, Matthew tells us that they all ate and were satisfied. For a Jew, you didn't have a proper meal until you ate until you were full. And several years ago, Keaton and I, my wife, we got to have a chance to uh, experience a Shabbat uh, Friday night dinner at a rabbi's house in Jerusalem when we were in Israel. And uh, it seemed like as the evening went on, it's like a progressive meal. And as the evening went on, uh, after course, after course, after course, somehow we were full and there seemed to be more than there was food to begin with uh, by the time we were done. It was so good. Uh, But in this story, Jesus does the same thing. They eat until they're full. This isn't just a lunchable anymore. This is a miracle of provision that is on displaying the power of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They all ate and were satisfied. It's God's heart. It's Christ's heart. The prophet Isaiah, many, many years before Jesus, prophesied about Jesus. And he said this in Isaiah chapter 40. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. Not only is this his work, this is also his person. Jesus Christ, this man, has both the heart and the ability to provide just what we need. This is the King of kings and the Lord of all creation on full display. Now, we all have needs, right? Some of my, some of my needs are actually wants, but we all have needs. But what is our greatest need? Here's the thing. I think that most every single person in this room, or if you're watching online, I think that we have the ability to meet every single material need that we have. So our greatest need isn't that we have a bigger nest egg. It isn't that we have a larger house or that we even find the cheapest gas in town so we save a couple of cents. Maybe you think your need is a better car or a better wardrobe, a better job, a better spouse, or to get into the best school there is. And if those are the things that we think are our greatest need, then we're really no different than the Israelites in the wilderness or those 5,000 that were on that hillside with Jesus. It's because it's not about receiving from God, receiving things from God. It's about receiving God himself in Jesus It's not about receiving things from God. It's about receiving God himself in Jesus. Friends, our greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that you're like, 
Hunter, you're a preacher. We expected you to say that. We all saw it coming. But I need you to hear me. It's absolutely true. Our greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. I think that it's sometimes hard for us to see our spiritual need whenever all of our physical and material and whatever other kind of needs are already met by our own achievements. We have good paying jobs. We, we have fortunate circumstances. Uh, we've, we've worked hard and we have all of our needs met, but there is one need that you cannot do yourself. No, no amount of your own accomplishment will ever meet this greatest need. And here's the thing. I'm afraid that for many of us, we hear this and we know this, but we're ignoring it. Or we know it and we hear it, but yet we've never slowed down long enough to actually say, all right, Jesus, yes, I, I need you. I need you to provide that need that I have. In Christ, there is nourishment. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if Jesus is the bread of life, then in him is the fullness of the nourishment that we need in our lives. Jesus wants to meet our greatest need. He does so in going to the cross, his body broken like that bread. His blood poured out and spilled for you and for me, doing what we could not do for ourselves, paying the price that we could not do, meeting our greatest need that we have as people, as people, to grant us forgiveness of our sins and to give us a new and restored and beautiful relationship with God, our creator, the one whose heart we see on full display in Jesus Christ. His heart is ever longing after you, Jesus. Hebrews 4 tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Listen to this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How beautiful, how wonderful the way made for us, made for us that we may come and receive what we need in our time of need. And it's God's grace, it's God's mercy, it's his love that we need to say salvation that he gives to us. So friends, let's approach boldly with confidence before this throne of God to find and to receive in our time of need because he is willing and he is able. Will you let him provide for you? There are three takeaways I want us to leave with uh, today. The first one is this. It's pretty simple seems to be the hardest. Trust him. Trust him. If Jesus can feed 5,000 on, uh, on a hillside in the middle of nowhere, then I think that we can trust that he will provide for us. That story should encourage us 
We should take that with us. It should encourage us in our confidence in Jesus, even in the most trying and destitute situations that we find ourselves in, because Christ's heart goes out for you. And in those trying and destitute situations and times that we find ourselves in, we have to trust Jesus. We have to trust him. Our lead pastor, Jonathan, has said this many times, and it is a great truth, is that God's past provision is the best indicator of his future faithfulness. God's past provision is the best indicator of his future faithfulness. If God provided for the Israelites in the Old Testament, if God provided for those 5,000 on the hillside in the middle of nowhere in the New Testament, then how much more will he be faithful today in your testament to his goodness and his grace? Now, it can be hard to wait. I think that a lot of times when we trust God, we have to wait for him. When I felt the call to go to seminary uh, for graduate school, I narrowed it down to two schools. Uh, And one school, the first school, offered me an almost full ride um, and housing. Uh, The second school offered me not quite half tuition. Now, we're all logical people. Which one would you choose? right? Keaton and I felt that we were supposed to go the second route. And I just said, Lord, I am not sure what we're about to do uh, because I'm not sure how we're going to make ends meet with this. And so we went. And the whole way we trusted God, we hit our knees, we began to pray and call out and say, God, we need you to provide Uh, Not sure how we're going to make it past this semester, let alone how we're going to pay the bills whenever all this happens. But we began to pray, and I felt God say, you need to just start applying for scholarships. So I went online, and I Googled anything that Google would bring up for seminary scholarships. I began to apply to scholarships that said you had to be a North Carolina resident in the you know, something, something church in Wilson County. I don't know. It's absolutely random stuff. And I just said, Lord, I don't know. I'm going to do it and we'll just see what happens. And would you know it? Jehovah Jireh. By the time, even before we finished that first semester, God had provided scholarships from people, from churches, from organizations, many of which I had never even heard of or seen for me to be able to go to school and not have to worry about that. Now, I could have done it on my own, right? I could have said, you know, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to go take out uh, a whole bunch of loans or I'm going to go work four jobs or, you know what, we'll just drop out because we're not going to be able to afford this. I could have done all of that in my own time and on my own way. But when it seemed like the odds were against us, we said, Lord, You're Jehovah Jireh. You will provide. I think that God just needed, and honestly, this is probably one of the first true times, I think, in my life that I had to trust him. And man, was the reward worth it. I'm able to look back on on that provision from the Lord, and it gives me hope for his future faithfulness, no matter what I may experience. And there are so many other stories of which God has been faithful in the past that gives me hope and confidence that he's working, that he's moving, that he will provide for the future. 
So we have to trust him. We have to trust him. Second takeaway is this, is that God provides for us and uses us to provide for others. Every single thing that we have is a gift from God. Everything. From the money that we have, from the house, the possessions that we have, to the giftings, the personalities that we have, it is all a gift from God. And God has blessed us so that we would be a blessing to others. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus, he gave the disciples the bread, right? To hand out to the people. Now, do you think that the disciples were, you know, Jesus took and he's like, all right, here you go. And he's giving it out. And they're like walking around with all the bread for everybody, you know. And it's just like, whatever falls off, that's yours. (sighs) No. He broke it and he gave it to each of the disciples. And as they're going, they're handing. And God is multiplying as they go. And I love how one of our staff members, uh, I won't name who it was, but said, Hunter, did you notice how many baskets were left over in the end? It's 12. Meaning that as the disciples gave out, Jesus left enough for them as well. They still had enough. You see, I think our God gives to us so that we would give to others, so that he would use it for something. And I think that sometimes we think, oh no, I'm going to run out, right? Especially when God has called us to give extravagantly of, of something that he's given us. But I don't think that he's going to do that. He will always provide. He is Jehovah Jireh. He's blessed you to be a blessing to someone else's life in this world. So finally, number three, let us not forget. Let us not forget. The Israelites, over and over and over again, the disciples, over and over and over again, forgot. Let's not forget. Let's not be too easy to forget what God has done in providing for us. And so we need to work in rhythms to to slow down and to remember. And one of the things that I love is that over and over in the Old Testament, God says, remember. It's one of the most common commands of God. Remember, remember what I have done. And I think it's a practice for us that would be good for us to pick up as well. So I'm going to ask Sandra to keep playing softly for us. And I know that we talk about this a lot. We, we throw out things and we're like, hey, go try this at home uh, today. But, you know, I think that God has brought us here to this moment this morning for uh, a reason. And instead of just talking about, hey, go home this week and slow down and find some time to just listen. I just want us to take one minute, literally one minute for the spirit to speak to each of us just to open ourselves up so that we, we see, God, what, what has been your past provision in my life? Thank you. God, I want to trust you more. I love, there's so many instances in, in the Gospels where people say these like one-sentence prayers to Jesus. If you're not sure you can trust him, a great one-sentence prayer from the Gospels is, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help me. 
But what are these things? Maybe you need to thank God for meeting your greatest need. Maybe you need to give up something, take it out of your hands so that you can take grasp of what Jesus is providing for you in his forgiveness and in his grace. Maybe you need to stop and you need to feel for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time, his heart that goes out for you. But I just wanna make some time to allow the Lord just to, to move in our hearts, to move in our minds in this moment. So let's, let's seek him. Jesus, if you have authority over nature, if you have authority over human conditions as we see in your scripture, then Lord, surely you can provide for our every need. And Lord, most importantly, we know that you can provide for our greatest need. And so Father, we thank you for the witness, the testimony of your scripture of your character, of who you are, Lord Jehovah Jireh. Lord, help this truth go from our ears into our minds and down into our hearts that we may hear and know and feel, truly know and live in the goodness and the grace of who you are. Who is this man, Jesus? Lord, it is you. You are the provider of our every need. Help us to trust you. Help us to give to others and help us to not forget. We thank you for your past provision. Lord, help us to hope and to expect your future faithfulness. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In a second, we're going to stand and sing. And the altar rails are open if you'd like to come and pray. Jonathan and I will be up here. You can wave us over and we'd love to pray with you. You can pray in your seat, grab a friend. You can go out in the hall, whatever you need to do. But let's sing a song of praise to who God is and what he has done. Let's stand and sing together.